Ahe Mysteries, investigated by Patrick Muirhead, inspired by real events on a remote tropical island, but all characters and action depicted are imaginary. Time of Innocence, Episode 7. Sebastian was spending the morning marking students' exam papers with later plans to visit some on work placements at resorts in the island's north as far as feasibly possible from me. I decided, therefore, to leave him to it, banish myself, and drive the moke somewhere quiet for contemplation. Literally taking to the hills, I found it on the road to Sanssouci at an elevated point called Venstown, among the ancient ruins of Mission Lodge, now returned to forest, that was once the 19th century home for children of liberated slaves. There was a sheltered platform and a view along the western shore of breathtaking beauty, a place of perfect peace. A party of tourists was leaving, and I had the little pavilion entirely to myself, leaning on its balustrade, staring towards a distant ocean. A light wind was whipping up wave caps, churning up thoughts of how different my life in tropical paradise was from the well-remembered but lonelier one I'd had in London years earlier. Then, as Dougie Summers had reminded me, I'd worked for the BBC at Broadcasting House, intoning the sacred shipping forecast to seafarers from the Solway Firth to the Solent. I recalled those unforgettably poetic headings, North at Sira, South at Sira, Tyne, Fisher, Dogger, German Bite, that conjured up mental images of turbid, tempestuous depths around Britain's coast. Living in Mahe, the calmer waters that were life to many and indirectly sustained Sebastian and me, provided less monetary comfort, but compared to those choppy seas back home, were far kinder and embracing. I realised I was pushing my luck with the patient man into whose ocean fate had swept me. What was it that I hoped to prove that Sebastian so strongly felt was putting our lives in jeopardy? Could I really catch a killer? My investigative zeal derived, I felt, from an even more powerful desire to ensure that a palpably innocent man would not become the victim of a misjustice. That mattered much more to me than the smaller triumph of beating the police to trap a murderer. And it was still far from certain, for there was little real evidence, that the deaths of the Bowski sisters were anything more than an accident. Robbie had given me a lead, the name of a taxi pirate, who could perhaps provide an account of the singer's movements after the party. But Herbert Gialor was in various ways not someone whose testimony was likely to withstand much judicial scrutiny. He was a familiar character, a heroin addict, scratching a few rupees wherever and however he could. I would search for him, but not yet. First though, what I had not yet done and knew I must, was visit the supposed crime scene for myself to feel the presence of the place. It was shielded by police cordon, but I knew a way. Only, that would require the cooperation of the one person who was just then perhaps least inclined to provide it. The thing is, I explained to Sebastian on our veranda twenty minutes later, if you can push aside your fears and fury, we can perhaps get to the bottom of this. 
I'm busy, can't you see? He said without looking up from his exam papers. After this, I'm going to Berjaya, and I don't want any part in your mischief. But you know Robbie needs help. He's not a killer. We both know it. Maybe so, but the police perhaps think otherwise, he said. I frowned, but felt that the battle of wills was worth the fight, and some emotional blackmail was called for. You're a person of color. You know what discrimination feels like. That's something I can never pretend to own. Robbie's being judged by how he looks, a dreadlocked raster, an easy target. That lifestyle always attracts suspicion. So help me do the right thing and get me into Cateau Noir. You have the perfect reason to go there. Perhaps I do, said Sebastian, but you don't. I'll enter incognito, I said. Just another white man in a Panama hat. No one will notice or care about someone who looks like a tourist. Sebastian studied me, tapping his teeth contemplatively with the cap of his red marking pen. At length, he capitulated with a weary sigh. You better be right, mister, he said. It was nearly four o'clock when we pulled into the staff parking at the resort. We'd agreed that Sebastian would enter first through the property's back of house to make the necessary introductions and scout the place. The late shift was on duty. Just act normal, chat to your students, I said. Signal to me when it's clear. Ah, oh, we seigneur, he said, climbing grudgingly from the car. Who do you think I am? Oh, yes, of course. I'll just say the name's Bon, Sebastian Bon. He sucked his teeth. I waited several minutes, watching late-arriving staff hurrying inside to change, and presently Sebastian appeared at the entrance, beckoning me. Within a few moments, I had penetrated the fortress, following Sebastian's heels through corridors past noisy kitchens and an untidy canteen, and into the much more salubrious surroundings of the hotel bar. A pianist was tickling a selection of 70s soul melodies to a modest matinee audience, just a few guests who had sought refuge from the scorching afternoon and refreshment in the cabana's shade. Sebastian shooed me to a table apart from them. I made a swift assessment of what I had seen only at a distance a few days earlier, a place whose prohibitive prices ordinarily excluded us. Sebastian was addressing two girls, nervous management students, dressed in the resort's uniform, who were learning the hospitality trade from ground level up, the flares and flourishes of mixing cocktails, memorizing menu lists and allergen-free alternatives, anticipating the whims of demanding but most valued returning guests, and perfecting the subtle art of upselling. He sent one of them over with a tray bearing a pot of lapsang souchong and handmade pastries. From this corner, I studied the geography of the bar where the American sisters had spent that ill-starred Saturday evening, enlivened by a day of outdoor adventure, ordering drinks in company with Dougie Summers. Close by, perhaps earlier, Bella Caddo had been there too, arguing over money with her aunt and uncle visiting from England. 
At some point, as the bar staff polished glasses and replenished refrigerators, a man of familiar dreadlocked appearance had arrived, had been seen with the sisters. All in proximity, it seemed unlikely any witnesses could have been mistaken. Looking beyond the cabana, the sisters' villa, still sealed by police tape, was barely a half-minute's drunken stumble away on a curving path through the casuarinas. His teaching tasks completed, Sebastian joined me. So are you satisfied now? He said, pouring himself tea. Not quite, I said. I want you to get something from the bar. Something like what? The women's last bar bill. They must have signed it. I want to see exactly what they were drinking during that binge with Dougie. It might tell us something. You don't give up easy, do you? He said, placing down his cup resentfully and summoning over a bright and smiling girl, barely more than a teenager, the name Anisha, printed on a badge pinned to her enormous bosom. Bon après-midi, monsieur. I am Anisha, she said, reaffirming for the short-sighted. Sebastian leaned forward and whispered into her ear. Anisha nodded, smiled again, and hurried away, returning a few moments later with a scrap of paper. It was a crumpled carbon copy, retrieved from where it had been impaled on the bar spike. I inspected the list of cocktails. The party had had a heavy-duty night of it, that was very clear. But there was nothing among the sickly mix of mojitos, sidecars, mint-laden grasshoppers, or foaming pink squirrels that particularly raised an eyebrow. Until that was, I spotted the scrawled signature at the bottom. What's this? I said to Sebastian, pointing it out. This is where the guest confirms what they're paying for, right? So who is N. Nisette? He took the paper and studied it. I can tell you exactly, he said, but I don't think you'll be happy. I peered at him quizzically. How do you mean? That's Norbert Nisette. And who is Norbert Nisette, I said, wondering if all involved in investigating the deaths may have made some glaring omission, the possibility of another person's presence. Norbert Nisette is Robbie's real name, said Sebastian. I thought you knew. He and Rich are twins. And in this country, it's always the same with twins. Parents give their kids names that are alike. Rich is really Norville. Robbie is Norbert. So he was here, I said, if this barbell can be believed. Of course he was here, Montgare. But you can't accept it. People saw him on Saturday night, and yes, that means he must have moved fast after the party in town. It's just not possible, Seb, I said, shaking my head and looking around. Let me show you something else, then, he said, rising from his chair and returning to the bar. I watched him as he spoke to a student folding napkins. A moment later, he resumed his seat and handed me a CD, its cover crazed with scratches. I studied the label. This was Robbie's first album, he said. L'autre moi, released just after we finished at NYS. It was very popular at the time, still good even now. 
Note moi, the other me, I said. Right, and look at the picture. Robbie's raster bracelet. Read the name on it. It was there, undeniably clear, on the leather band of entwined strands of red, gold and green, a simple moniker was embossed. Norbert, the real Robbie, that I barely knew. Sometimes, my love, said Sebastian pointedly, the people we think we know, even the ones we think we know well, are a massive disappointment. Later that evening, we prepared dinner in somber silence at the beach house. Sebastian was distant, and unusually even I had little to say, nor much hunger, as I slowly shredded green pawpaw from the garden to make satini papai. My indigestion was raging, and my mind was jumping, scrabbling with ever more desperate explanations. We ate a supper of curry-coco-zurit on the veranda, only the swishing of the Indian Ocean beyond the coconut trees intruding into our private thoughts. Sebastian cleared away the plates, and I sat alone for a while, lit a Winston, and stared into the darkness. After a few minutes, I heard the light tread of his flip-flops returning to the table, but I couldn't bring myself to turn and look at him. A kindly hand rested on my shoulder. This is hard for you, he said. I know that. You take stuff seriously. Would you need to listen to me, mister? Other people may have a claim on you, on your time, but things need to change. I'm not your personal holiday. I'm Sebastian, remember? And I should come first. Our life here together should be at the center of things, not a sideshow. Is that what you think our marriage is to me? I said. You were wrong to go and see Robbie without telling me, said Sebastian. It was risky. What if something had happened to you? It could have been a trap. With all this stuff going on, the Grigri, there's danger out there. But I trust him, Seb, I said. I simply can't believe he's a killer. Well, whatever he is, he isn't us, and we have our own battles. You have some unfinished work to do that will bring us some money, and that's more important. So what would you have me do, I said? Just drop it? You can decide that for yourself, he said. But I'm going to bed, and that's where you should be too. Safer that way for both of us. He left me, contemplating competing forces locked in deadly combat. There was the enigma of how two tourists had met their deaths, an unsolved puzzle, with the obvious inference that something malign lay behind it. I ruminated on how Bella Caddo, who everyone knew to have a codeine dependence problem, had been in the exact place of the suspicious events at the exact same time, an almost incredible coincidence. I mused on how she'd drunkenly confronted the sister's lawyer, also intoxicated, the friend from their school days in Ohio, who'd surprised me with the declaration, admitted freely, that he was the sister's attorney, a trusted advisor, who could perhaps secure their signatures on contracts for any amount of personal gain. 
And then there was the timid villa butler, Nirved Bandara, a devout Hindu, devoted Tamil husband and father, who'd felt insulted by the women's lewd advances and disrespected by all those he served. But the signs of guilt pointed far from these, to Robbie, the reggae artist, born Norbert Nisette. Finally, as I stubbed out my cigarette, I shambled indoors and reached for my laptop, hoping that at least there there might be an answer to an earlier and important inquiry. I slumped into an armchair, Linus and Lucy sloping in from the veranda to lay down in silent loyalty at my feet as I powered the screen to life. An email pinged into my inbox from the superintendent of prisons, Roy Bastien, and in a welcome flicker of excitement, I opened it. I've received word from an inmate regarding your recent communication with her, it read. Prisoner 39, the Comtesse Marie-Alice de Chalice, has confirmed that she agrees to your request, and I have pleasure in granting your permission to visit. The Comtesse's ascent was a relief, even a shock. She was languishing at Montaigne Posay in large measure as a result of my previous investigation, serving a seven-year term for concealing her knowledge of the killing of her gardener. I was not seeking her forgiveness, nor really expecting an audience. But I felt that if anyone had any especial grudge against me, then she was by far the most likely. I resolved to make plans to see her, but felt it wiser to erase the evidence. I hit delete, then moved the cursor and clicked the deleted items folder to repeat the process and eradicate all trace. There, among other discarded mails, was a response to an inquiry sent to the social services department some days earlier. For a moment I felt confused, aware that I had not recently had any reason, personal or otherwise, to contact them. I restored the message to the inbox, opened it and read. It was addressed to Sebastian, responding to a mail that he apparently had mistakenly sent from my own account. The reply detailed our admissibility, some limitations, and the regulatory requirements that we as a married same-sex couple should meet to begin the process of fostering or adopting an orphaned island child. The Mahe Mysteries was created by Patrick Muirhead and Lindsay Farabo. It was written, narrated, and produced by Patrick Muirhead. Music was by Isham Rath. It was an operculum media production recorded on location in Mahe Island, Seychelles. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.